So I am very comfortable with huge degrees of risk because I am very uncomfortable with not being the person that I set out to be when I was 10 years old. She started on the ocean. Now she's a landlubber veterinary practice owner. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders community online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, an inspiring practice owner with a strong moral code in vet med and a community practice way older than she is, Dr. Krista Magnifico. She does everything she can to help every patient and pet owner regardless of funds. She mixes a very cause-based mission with the harsh realities of business and an inspiring style that comes from years as a woman leading manly men on ships for years. She gave up the fraternity of the Merchant Marine for life on land and helping animals. Krista, how did you come to this world of vet men? So I became an owner in 2006. I graduated vet school in 2005. This is my second career. So I spent my first 10 years, the first decade of my professional career out on the oceans, sailing in the merchant marine. This was my my true passion and my second career. So I sort of entered vet school, debt-free, pretty accomplished, having seen the world and been in charge of my own little ship for a while um, and knew that Whatever I brought to this profession with the passion side of me, I also wanted to kind of bring with the leadership side of me. So I think I was pretty much destined to be a practice owner. I have some military background and then the sea background, and I just knew that I was ready to sort of man my own ship on the land with the desire to be a a veterinarian. So I knew coming kind of out of vet school that I had to own my own practice. I wanted to jump in right there because I am curious about the transition. So, you know, while you were in the merchant, so what do you call, do you call it the merchant marine? People call it the merchant marines. What is it? Yeah, it's the private sector. Okay. What was calling to you about veterinary school when you kind of had a solid career in the merchant marine? I was just one of those girls. I was the 10 year old girl who didn't want to be anything else and grew up in a family who wanted her to be anything else. And yeah, at some point you grab the reins and decide your own destiny within a life that didn't offer you the options elsewhere. My parents didn't see veterinary medicine as a career that was pride worthy or you could make a desirable living. We grew up on Long Island and then moved to New Hampshire. So we moved into the country and that country vet was the guy who lived above his practice. The goats and the cows and the guy that my parents called at two o'clock in the morning when our dogs got into porcupines and, (laughs) you know, who they paid in, you know, paltry, who goes to get up at two o'clock in the morning to take care of a porcupine dog for 40 bucks, you know, and they, they sort of saw what, what they did to him is not a reflection they wanted to provide for me. So it was very difficult for me to go to vet school. I didn't have a lot of support. So you were debt free when you entered. How did you look when you came out? I was debt-free when I left. Oh, sweet. What'd you do? So I made enough money working for 10 years in the Merchant Marine to save for vet school, to save for my house. And then I had some support from, you know, outside of that. So I, I had really kind of strategically planned to be able to get through four years of vet school. And then I was in a state school and it was really cheap. It was 
I, Virginia Tech at that time, I think, was like $5,000 a year. It was ridiculously cheap. So it was easy for me to save and have everything paid off. But I had a 10-year plan to do it. I mean, I just kept whittling away. I never lost sight of the dream. And I never stopped saving for it. And I never stopped preparing for it. And I was just determined. And you graduated in 05. You bought no six. So then you decided, okay, I've gotten through life so far with no debt. I need some debt. So, yeah. <laughs> so you decided I'm going to, cause you bought a practice, not built one from out of nowhere. I bought a practice that had been in practice for 60 years. I bought it from a man who had been here for 30 something years and he had been diagnosed with a brain tumor and given a pretty bad prognosis when I showed up. So I sort of, I think I, I answered his prayers and he answered my prayers and he financed it for me and he gave me an opportunity that probably very few people would have done. And I'm just that person who doesn't take no for an answer. And I didn't feel like I couldn't do it. And I had a very supportive husband who said, you know, even if I don't make a paycheck for five years, we could afford to, to live on his salary. And thankfully, he lived for another 12 years. So, you know, the previous owner. So, so I was paying him back and he was giving me an opportunity to keep his practice alive and without going corporate, because corporate at that point was not really a big player in the field. He was pretty desperate to try to figure out an exit strategy in a very short time frame. Was his practice, you know, your parents' vision as you grew up was sort of the the Harriet-style public servant who kind of, again, you know, trucks in barter, will take things in barter, and is just a, a giving person in the community, and everyone loves them in the community, but maybe they don't have the best business. When you came into this, was this an, kind of an old-fashioned practice like that, or was it a little more modern and like, no, we're running this like a financial, it's a business? Yeah, I was very lucky in that I inherited a practice that was very much the practice that I would have built 60, 80 years ago. It was a small town practice. This practice is so old that it's one of, I think, two original in the county. So we've been here a long time. And I had clients who had been, their grandparents had, you know, brought them here when they were really little and now their grandparents. So we had a rich, steeped history. The kennel used to be the livestock area. So when I came here, we were just dog and cat, but he was practicing very good medicine. He was a really genuine, gritty, honest, very high integrity person. I mean, he, he and I, we both shared a love for medicine. We practiced very different. I'm going to say very differently, but we were both really committed to this profession and the people that we served. So I was very, very lucky. So it sounds like maybe you came in under his wing and everybody was happy with it. Or was there a transition where people missed him for a period of time and you could feel that angst? I would say looking back on it, that it was pretty horrible. Okay. <laughs> he had been here for so long and he was so, you know, people were so endeared to him and he was so beloved that they really didn't want a new person. They really didn't want a girl and they really didn't want a new person. And he didn't want to tell anybody what was going on. So I think he was so, I mean, his, his prognosis was given him, it was so bad that they really thought that he had less than six months and he just wanted to get his things in order. He wanted to exit stage right. And as much as he loved this practice, he didn't want to talk to anybody anymore. He wanted to go live the rest of his life on his terms. And it meant severing ties here. And I had people for the first 
I'm going to say the first couple of years, who literally left the practice because they wanted to see him and only him. And I would be standing up at the front desk sort of screaming internally, you know, like, I don't have him tied up in the basement. Like, it's not <laughs> just withholding him from you, you know. So I felt we probably should have done a much better job in transitioning. There should have been some way that we both kind of, you know, let him leave on his terms with as much privacy and respect as possible and then introduced me because it was the only option. So for whatever reason, he was faced with this very sudden, unexpected, well, you're going to have to make all your goodbyes. And this one goodbye, look, it's just easier not to do it. I'm going to go off and live the end of my life exactly how I want. And as yeah. exactly you said, cut all ties and cut these responsibilities, people. I'm moving on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think for me, I was really sort of perplexed in how much he was beloved. And I knew how much he loved these people in return. And yet he just wanted to walk away. He just wanted to close this book and walk away. And I'm sort of understanding that now with my own 20 years in, you know, that it's hard. The real love and lifeblood of this profession is the people that we build these stories around. And yet it can consume you to the point where it's hard for you to recognize your life outside of it. So I want to ask about that right there, because I think one of the things that I found so compelling to me and sort of like immediate, I found so magnetic about you was your overall philosophy that I think a lot of veterinarians say they don't turn away pets. They don't turn away patients. Money is not the issue, but you kind of really years ago, put your foot down publicly and just said to the world, kind of like, money is not the issue. If you come here, we're going to give care. We're going to make this work. And I think that's a scary thing for people who are worried about keeping a hospital running. And I think just philosophically, you were very strong about it. So tell me how you felt strongly about it back then. Is there some sense of, oh my God, it's easy if you have that philosophy to lose your boundaries? How do you feel now based on maybe what we talked about 10 years ago? Yeah, that's a really good point. My boundaries. Maybe I need to explore boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just wondering if you're saying I get why he just walked away because again, you're building all these relationships and there's something about, yeah, is it easy to build up kind of just exhaustion and burnout and some touch of resentment in there? I don't know. You tell me. Oh, yeah. I think for him, and I should not speak for him, but I think for him and what I do identify with is with that relationship, that multi-generational relationship, there is a degree of responsibility. And at some point, you have to kind of walk away and redefine your responsibilities. He had a wife, he has a child, he, you know, he had people that he had spent a lot of time away from when he was here. And there was no way to justify him leaving in the public's eye. He, you know, he didn't feel responsible anymore to answer their questions and have that same kind of intimate relationship that he had fostered for decades. I can see and understand that now when I couldn't before. You know, there is some point to saying, I have done all I can, I have given all I can, and now I need to figure out what the next part of my life's going to look like. And you say that and you don't want to hurt feelings because you've built these relationships that you really do cherish. And I know he really did cherish them. With that, I practice medicine differently than he does. He was very much all about the client and I am very much all about the patient as an extension of the client, which is, you know, sort of how I decided to run the practice. He he never turned anybody away, just like I never turn anybody away, but he also put the client ahead of everybody else and I'm 
always trying to put the patient ahead of everybody else. I'm always trying to say, how can I help this client, help this patient and still be fair to everybody involved? I think everybody looks at it as a big risk. And, and I looked at it as the only way I could like myself at the end of this journey. I think I've seen you write about this idea a couple of times. So you're exactly, you know, I made it sound like you take everyone, but really I could see how that's different. His focus was on the people and whatever the people needed. And your focus is on the animal patients and whatever the animal patients needed. And oftentimes those two Venn circle diagrams match up perfectly, right. but sometimes they don't. And I've seen you write a couple of times about the fact that kind of your no fly zone, your boundary is you have to care about this pet. So tell me how that manifests, how that manifests in, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about how that plays out. I think it manifests in just kind of clearly defining a problem, which is medicine, you know, what medicine is. We clearly define the problem with as much, you know, exactness as possible. And then we decide how we're going to collectively work on the solution to it. And that means that anything is in play, nothing is outside of being discussed. And we keep redefining what the box looks like, no matter what it takes. You know, sometimes that's having really personal discussions with people. What are your physical options? You know, what can you physically handle with this pet? You know, for my 80-year-old clients who get 180-pound dogs, how can they physically manage? Never mind emotionally, never mind financially. So it's really looking at the whole picture and understanding how all of us collectively make this you know, into a sequela that we can all kind of live with without knowing what that might be, without knowing, you know, if this is curable or treatable or manageable or financially, we can find an answer to. And then I think we sit down and we all just talk. I mean, there's a lot of time spent talking to people about what is your end goal? What does this pet mean to you? What can you manage? Where are you in your life? And then, and then understanding what kind of role we can play in helping them get to an ending that's beneficial for, for the pet and for them involved. And we are very good at taking ourselves out of the equation. We don't sit there and, and negotiate with what we're willing to do. We sit down and say, what are you capable of doing? You know, what matters to you? And then sometimes we offer crazy scenarios. You know, we will find a rescue to take ownership of this pet, or we will do a social media blast to raise funds, or we will make this journey part of everybody's storyline. So we will post the beginning, the middle, and the end. And sometimes there's not always an ending that everybody wants, but everybody's been on this journey together and we create a community around this pet and, and amazing things happen, you know? It's not miracles with respect to medicine, but it's miracles with respect to helping people not feel alone and not feel like they they lost their dignity and their capability and their most beloved companion in the process. There's a lot of talk about burnout and kind of maybe I started going down this road because you mentioned, oh, maybe I can finally understand a little bit that, you know, the exhaustion that could come with that. But I think I saw somebody as interesting wrote an article, I feel like in the past year where they sort of peeled out burnout from moral exhaustion. And I've heard people talk about this before at conferences. We kind of lump it all together. Your job exhausts you. But one of the issues is moral exhaustion, your moral boundaries and values are coming up against it in the exam room in what people are willing to do or want to do with their pets. And it hurts you inside. It sounds like maybe you and your team have clearer guidelines to avoid that kind of moral exhaustion. But I don't know, you tell me. Yeah, I think that's very clear. I think there's no doubt that exhaustion exists. We work ourselves ridiculous hours trying to be everything to everybody all the time and meeting a need that seems to have no end. You know, the tidal floods never seem to recede. The pandemic just magnified all of that. 
But there's a difference between being physically exhausted and then, you know, morally, ethically, emotionally, and even financially exhausted. I have decided a very long time ago that, you know, it really is all about, you know, I use the, the term getting out alive all the time. Like at the end of the day, we have to all get out alive and we have to be happy about the people that we were during it. So for me, that means I put some boundaries on things. I get up in the morning. I don't have an alarm clock anymore. I've gotten rid of that. I get up on my own terms. I enjoy being at home with my animals. I have a cup of coffee. I go for a run. I do some writing and then I come into work and and I go home at the end of the day really feeling like I left my heart and soul on the playing field and I'm really proud of what I accomplished. And then sometimes I have to you know, talk to people and look around and say, I just need five minutes to process a thought before I can go on to the next thing. And then I take time off. I, I work hard and I play hard. That silly old adage. I do. <laughs> I, I sleep for two days and do what I want on the weekends because I have to kind of refuel and refocus. I love what I do. I could never be anything else. I could never do anything else. If I wasn't getting paid for it, if I wasn't getting told thank you for it, I would still be doing this. My heart and soul belongs to these patients, and I never lose sight of that. I sit down with every single one of them in every single exam. I tell them how beautiful they are. I tell them how proud I am of them, and I tell them that I'm here to just make them better, and it is my focus, and it allows me to stay you know, very tightly morally bound to what I'm doing and why I'm here, and then we just make whatever we can the happiest ending that we can. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. So I think that passion is, I think it's inspirational. And like when you're in the proximity of it, I could imagine how that is. I mean, it's intoxicating for the entire team. So people have been around for a long time and maybe new people so somebody who it sounds very cause driven and there is, I see a tendency now with the pandemic, people reevaluating their jobs. And I think one reevaluation people make is, well, look, this is just a job. And you figured out that balance for you. That's like everybody hates the work-life balancing. So call it whatever you want, work-life integration, whatever word we could use, euphemism to get away from that there's a perfect balance, no perfect balance for everybody. Do you feel like you have watched as you've sorted your own life have the people on your team through the years, have they struggled up and down through these same kinds of self-reflection issues you're thinking about? Is this job worth it to me? Am I working too hard? Am I devoting myself too much to it? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're all on our own journey inside this profession with 
so many jagged edges. We all are. And I say it all the time. You have to remember who you are at the core of who you are and really protect her. And for some people that is, I love the science part. And for some people that is, I love the people part. And for some people that is, I love the pet part. And whoever you are, just be true to who you are and then protect her. Do follow your heart and and never lose sight of that. I think that, you know, the people who are around me are all a lot like me (laughs) in that they're in veterinary medicine because that is their passion. And here I try very hard to protect that. This is a very safe workspace. I do not allow the public to infringe on our personal safety boundaries. There is no degree of someone being unkind to you, just as we are never unkind to the people and the pets that we take care of. So, it, you know, one breeds the other, but this is not the perfect place for everybody. You know, if you came here and you're all about the money, it's just never going to work. Do I think you're going to make more money here than you were anywhere else around me? I absolutely do, but you have to be true to who you are. And people understand genuine integrity. They do. For some people, if you're a specialist and you don't have these long-term relationships, it can be easier. But for those of us in private practice and in communities that have been here forever, there's a legacy that we inherit and there's a legacy that we have to protect and, and provide a, a future for. So I'm, yeah, I'm very lucky. I have a lot of longstanding employees and veterinarians and we're very transparent and we're very good to each other in a very chaotic place. There was somebody who was describing, it's interesting you mentioned um, specialists, the different kinds of personalities within veterinary medicine and how they they might happily fall in different places. I know people who've gotten disillusioned in jobs where they don't see the same people all the time. So it really bums them out that they don't get to carry these cases from beginning to end. I know some people don't like emergency for that reason. They really want to see these people, animals through the lifetime, and they never do if they're especially in emergency. But then on the flip side, there are people who are so good about those individual moments and Mm -hmm. then just passing those people on like ships in the night. I see you for one moment and then you're gone. And I see what you're talking about, taking real pleasure in developing the years long relationship with these people in the area. Yeah. I think I've had to adopt that destiny as the path that I've chosen. I can't be a practice (laughs) right? You can't be a practice owner and not understand the importance of that and then be very respectful to it. You know, is it nice to be a radiologist who gets to do the hours on their terms or, you know, the cardiologist who works from nine to five in most cases? And, you know, there's a lot of options in this profession. And it is, I think, difficult initially to kind of understand, do I know myself deep enough to be the person that I I want to be in 10 years? Can I start on a path now out of vet school and be in a place 10 years, 20 years down the road that makes me, you know, the most happy veterinarian within a profession that has a lot of sincere challenges. So every veterinarian looks back and says, well, I ended up in emergency medicine because of this, or I ended up as a, you know, a general practitioner in a small practice because of this. And then you have to really learn to appreciate the nuances and the advantages within that because it's a tough profession, you know, and people are tough and none of us went into veterinary medicine because we loved people. You are totally transparent. I loved it in the beginning talking about the fact that, I mean, some people would look at it, oh, it's charmed having no debt, but also you made a long-term plan. You stuck to it. You're lucky enough to stick to it and put the money away. So you were in a great financial spot. And I feel like now people feel like they can't make the decision you're making, which is, 
I'm going to own a practice. I'm going to focus on the pets and I'm not going to worry as much about the medicine. Now, if I have X amount of debt, I have to worry about the money. How has running your practice, have you ever had periods where you sort of fell off your own path and you were worried about the money and worried about things that didn't call to you and then you had to get yourself back on path? Probably the short answer is no, but I still, if I could hire two veterinarians tomorrow, I would hire them. And if you don't understand what the workplace looks like and how competitive it is to find a veterinarian right now, it is about the money. There's, you know, people are coming out with these, I'm going to call them ridiculous because they are ridiculous amounts of debt. And you have to provide some path for them to get out of that. So it is about the money. I have to be focused on the money because I want to reward my staff and I want to find the best talent and I want to retain the best talent. And there has to be a financial compensation for that. For me personally, I was really comfortable with a degree of risk that I don't think many people are. I knew that this was my dream and I was never going to take no for an answer. And if that meant I did shelter medicine, I was going to do shelter medicine. If that meant that I had to go back and live on the crazy budget that I did during vet school with a lot of ramen noodles and baked potatoes, (laughs) then I would do that. And then the pandemic hit and I thought, I am not going to lose this practice. It means I have to live here and do what the veterinarian at two o'clock in the morning, if I have to answer porcupine quill (laughs) calls to keep this place alive through what I knew would be the most challenging part of my career, I would do that. So I am very comfortable with huge degrees of risk because I am very uncomfortable with not being the person that I set out to be when I was 10 years old. I don't care what I have to lose along the way or sacrifice along the way because I believe so strongly in in what we do and the purpose that we serve. But there are people who work for me and I know that they struggle to a degree that I never did. And I'm very conscientious of that and trying to do everything I can to make their legacy something that they're proud of and not make life such a terrible struggle for them in the way that I know it is for a lot of veterinarians. Does it influence me? No. I talk to people who have no money about cases which might be really expensive and we figure out a way to to address the scenario so that we don't, you know, kind of lose our ability to love the next time and get a pet the next time because that's what I think it's really going to cost this profession. It's going to cost veterinarians and it's going to cost private practices, and it's going to cost us our trust with taking care of the public that we need to serve to keep this profession alive. I feel like there's this perennial argument that I've sat around with for 15 years now, sitting around in in vet med, the battle between the pure cause mission of serving the animals and all the things that come with the practicalities of running for-profit businesses in strip malls and freestanding buildings Mm -hmm. all over the country. And I think maybe Corporate gets to offload, it gets to separate the cause from the money by being big enough to separate admin and financial decisions from medicine. And I think there's a compartmentalization there. And there's compartmentalization that's encouraged even for entrepreneurs where say, hey, hire the practice manager. That's the person who's going to think about your money. Don't have your doctors thinking about the money. Can I ask, at your practice, being very driven by this strong philosophy do your people think about the money or are they encouraged to? How does money enter into the day-to-day decisions for you? So I think a couple things. I think that what corporate does and the advantage that they have is that they're not down here on this micro level. They're not looking at that person and looking right. at that dog and understanding that they're going to carry that on their heart and soul for however long those nightmares will keep you captive of. 
that's what corporate gets. They get to stand and make decisions without being part of the emotional burden that it brings. So it can be all about the dollars and the cents. For those of us that work down on that level, we, you know, we have a much tougher time. We are very clear about, you know, what things cost and and for people who have financial constraints, we encourage them to talk to us beforehand, you know, come in the door, let us know what your abilities look like. And then we are honest about kind of making a plan to move forward. For some of those cases, it means that I assume more risk. I will help a pet out one time with something. We'll put them on a payment plan for them to pay that off. And then the next time they're set up with a pet savings plan. So we literally use pet savings plans. So it's like the old fashioned Christmas clubs. Right. So that when the next disaster happens, they've got some ability to take over, take care of it initially. So we're not perpetuating these people into something that we know they can't manage. You know, we work a lot with a lot of rescues and sometimes we can utilize them. And then sometimes we just have to, you know, figure out a difficult situation in a way that's just, you know, not the norm. We, we offer a full spectrum of care. I think it's only about the money when we feel like there's a case that has a really horrible prognosis and we're setting somebody up who already is struggling to having to have their heart broken and then be in financial debt that they can't already manage. So we're, we're really good about that. I have a, I have a hospital manager who who talks to people and, you know, we can really kind of make it into smaller bite-sized pieces. And then the whole team kind of understands. And then, you know, in some cases I just say, this one is on the house. I give a lot of stuff away. I'd rather have people trusting us and feeling good about being here and me feeling like I did what was right for that patient, you know, for a very small financial investment. So yeah, it's just maintaining relationships on a very micro scale instead of the macro scale. That's the beauty of private practice. I mean, how much of your clientele rolls over? How many people do you think in your community have come once and done? So for instance, you put them on a plan or you gave them the one freebie and they never came back. And so most people would come back or I don't know how many options there are. Mm-hmm. I think in the beginning when I was doing this and I was seeing a lot of pyometras, there were a couple of people who, you know, I sort of wondered if regret was going to change my, you know, my practice methods. So there certainly were people who have been one and done, you know, took advantage of us and then left. It doesn't change the fact that there was still a patient, there was still a pet who benefited and I did the best I could. I would much rather have a clear conscience you know, then feel like we were, both of us got out of it what we needed to. So, but it's, it's gotten a lot better and I've gotten much, I've gotten much better at raising funds and having a slush fund available and then utilizing it for a patient. And there's no hard feelings. You know, I didn't really lose any money. I just utilized our, we have a good Samaritan fund that we use a lot, but it has very clear parameters. And then I tell people I'm like an elephant, right? Veterinarians never forget. We never <laughs> We never forget those people who kicked their dog in the parking lot or screamed profanities at the receptionist or came in and took us for something and then left and felt no responsibility to to make it flush. So, yeah, but I can't let it burden me. It's not worth it. Want more Dr. Magnifico? Head to kmdvm.blogspot.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. 
Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.